Hello and welcome to another Pyro Seminar. Uh, this month, uh, what I want to do is look at the notion of symbolic castration. Uh, uh, I think I titled this the, the uh, self-castration of God, uh, but it could also be called Why Lobsters Aren't Castrated. And uh, I, although it's going to be a bit theoretical at times, I also hope it's going to have some personal uh, uh, use. And also always what I want to do with these seminars is make sure that they connect in some way with the uh, theory and the practice of parotheology. So let's get started. Uh, why did I want to call it uh, Lobsters Aren't Castrated? I, I thought of that title when I was reading something that Jordan Peterson wrote about uh, lobsters. So he's very famous for using this lobster analogy. Uh, basically, in a nutshell, uh, what he does is he shows how uh, within the lobster community, don't know if you call it a community, whatever you would call it, um, there are natural hierarchies and the higher up you are in the hierarchy the more serotonin is released uh, the better you feel and this is just an analogy to talk about how uh, in the animal kingdom there are hierarchies there are authority structures that there's nothing like kind of uh, artificial or bad necessarily about these structures they are a reflection of nature and the idea is, of course, that hierarchies and authority structures are also natural within the human community. Uh, we evolve just like all other animals. Uh, we have uh, kind of hierarchies. Uh, we fit within those hierarchies. And uh, while in society there can be things that push against the right people getting the right jobs and getting somewhere, by and large, a healthy society operates with a type of meritocracy where everybody has or should have the equal um, access to a variety of uh, uh, rules within society and then the best person will hopefully get those rules. Um, so in, in a way it's a bit of a justification of meritocracy. Either the more conservative view, which is that we broadly live within a meritocracy. Of course, it's not perfect, but uh, we live very much within a system that is much more fair than it would have been hundreds of years ago. Or the idea that we don't live in a meritocracy, but we should aspire to live in a meritocracy. We should try to level the playing field so that the right people can get into the right jobs and not be held back because of some um, uh, position they hold within society. Now, the issue here is whether there is a substantial or qualitative difference between the hierarchies as they function within the rest of the animal kingdom and hierarchies as they function within society. And what I want to look at today is the idea that yes, there is um, an important distinction that we need to uh, be aware of in order to have a more nuanced view of how authority works within human societies. Uh, and to understand that, we've got to start with the notion that uh, Lobsters and most other animals, uh, there may be some exceptions in terms of like uh, animals that are closer to language, um, but in terms of most animals that we can see, hierarchy is natural. There is no difference between what you could call form and content. 
the stronger animals, the fitter animals, the animals that adapt better to their environment uh, do better than those animals that don't. Uh, so in, in within lobsters, for example, I guess it's the stronger lobster that uh, gets the, the hierarchical position over the more submissive uh, lobsters, right? So within the animal kingdom, hierarchy is kind of natural. It's happening and in order to understand the relative positions of various animals, we you know impose this, uh, this hierarchical system onto that in order to map it and understand it. Now, the difference between animals and humans here is that human beings are creatures of language. We exist within a symbolic world, not just a physical world, but also a symbolic world. And that means that authority is not just real. It's not just something that reflects uh, our natural abilities. Uh, it is so they are socially constructed. Hierarchical systems pre-exist us. We are born into them. We inhabit authority structures that already exist before we came on the scene and will exist after we leave. And this is important to acknowledge. So in a way, yes, hierarchies are natural within the human, human society, just as they're natural within the rest of the animal kingdom. But the slight difference is their form and content differ. There is an antagonism there within human society that we don't see within other, uh, uh, within the animal kingdom, which means that uh, you can inhabit a role that you are not best suited to. Uh, that, and of course, in a very basic way, uh, we do this all the time. You know, the best person for the job doesn't often get it. Uh, you can inhabit a variety of roles uh, in a, you, you don't fit completely. Um, and this is often called imposter syndrome, right? The uh, people experience this where they they feel that they are not what they are. They feel that they're an imposter. I was actually talking to someone last week, a friend of mine, who is a very successful business coach. He travels all around the UK, all around America, uh, getting into the rooms of like these massive organizations, helping to do personal development, uh, development in terms of co the corporation. And he was invited to a very prestigious uh, conference and he was very nervous about going. And when we talked about it, he said, yeah, I just feel like I'm going to be exposed as an imposter. I'm going to feel I'm, I'm going to be exposed as not really knowing what I'm talking about. Now, this is a guy who has been doing this work for 20 years, has worked with some of the biggest organizations in the world, has an incredible reputation, has a deep knowledge of his area of expertise and yet feels like an imposter. Probably not in his day to day work. But when he's put into that environment with other experts, this anxiety arises. And this feeling is very, very natural to us. And this is actually called symbolic castration. Symbolic castration kind of names that reality or that experience in which we do not fit neatly with the rules that we take, whether we're a teacher, a police officer, a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, whatever the rules are that you have within your world, that you feel that you're not quite the right person for them. You don't quite fit. Now, what we usually do when we experience that is, of course, we may want to deny it. 
So sometimes we pretend to ourselves that we do fit our role, that we are worthy of our position. If we're very successful, we're very rich, we're very famous, uh, maybe we we think, yeah, I do deserve this, right? The My place in society is similar to that of a lobster. I, through my skill and my hard work, uh, my uh, resolve, uh, I have got to this position. And so you try to deny this experience of symbolic castration. Or you feel it, but you project out that you don't feel it. So you pretend that you've got it all sorted. You pretend that you deserve that position when deep down you're feeling a little bit like uh, you shouldn't be in the position that you're in. Now, to try to revive this word authenticity and maybe take it out of its more new age kind of context, popular context, one could say that authenticity isn't finding the rule that fits you completely, which is what often the popular notion of authenticity is, that you want to find who you are, uh, what you should be doing, what your vocation should be. And when you find that, you are authentic. To this idea that to be authentic is to realize that you're not authentic. <laughs> it to, to be authentic is to acknowledge the gap or the antagonism between your role symbolically within the world and your experience of that role, that they're not one and the same. There is a slight disparity between them. So that's, that's kind of symbolic castration. As I say, we can either deny it uh, to ourselves or pretend that we don't experience it to other people. But it is part of what it means to be human. Um, now, what happens is you get a leader, for example, who either fully identifies with their symbolic rule, that they think they deserve it, they think they're the expert, they think they know best, and that's why they're the leader. This can call, cause all manner of problems and tyrannies. Or you can have a leader who completely uh, uh, thinks that authority structures are purely symbolic fictions and you play the game in order to get what you want, right? You can play with them, but they don't mean anything. And what I want to try to argue is that neither of those positions is, is, is right. They both uh, cause a lot of problems. Um, but there are two ways to, to react as a leader. Is One is, yes, I deserve this. I am an expert. And by the way, think about it like this is, you're a leader, a world leader shouldn't be an expert. Um, in, in some respects, you want them to be a bit dumb, right? You want them to be not, not great at their job and to know that they're not great at their job so that they can listen to experts and they can enact the will of the people through democracy. The fear is if you have a leader who is an expert, who in, in one sense deserves the position because they know best, then in a democratic society, they may decide to go against the democratic will of the people because that leader knows best. That leader doesn't have to obey or enact or incarnate the will of the people because they know better than the people. But then on the other side as well, if you get a leader who is just purely there out of self-interest, a Machiavellian type of leader who simply uses these authoritarian rules to maximize their own interests, um, then you get uh, you know, obviously a very cynical type of leadership and uh, one that uh, 
that people stop believing in and that causes all manner of problems. Uh, you kind of, in a way, want a leader who acknowledges their symbolic castration. Uh, this is one of the interesting things about um, uh, monarchy uh, as it functions in the UK. Because uh, today we know monarchy, um, monarchy, you don't deserve it. You're, you, don't, you don't become king or queen because of your intelligence, because of your skills, because of your courage or anything like that. It's a pure act of contingency. We don't believe in the divine right of kings anymore. So it's like, wow, you just won the lottery. And in a sense then, there's a way in which they are a purely symbolic rule. They are there to enact the will of the people. Um, they are not some divinely instituted individual who has this either divine expertise or human expertise. Now this is kind of under threat now with the, um, uh, yeah, yeah, with the, the idea that actually these, these royal figures um, do deserve their position and there's a whole connection now with Hollywood that's happening. But, um, but in general, it's a pure act of fate. You're not there because of some sort of work that you've done. Um, <clears throat> okay, so you've got human hierarchies and you've got animal hierarchies. Animals aren't castrated. They don't experience this, this distance or this gap between their role and themselves. Human beings, we feel this symbolic castration. Um, and we, we feel it, as Shizak talks about how when someone introduces him at a conference and they start to say all these really nice things about everything that he's done, he just feels like, who is that person that they're talking about? And he says, that's symbolic castration, is when you're hearing yourself explained and expressed as this symbolic role and you don't identify with it. You go, oh yeah, that, that, that person doesn't feel like myself. Um, now then, this is kind of what Winnicott, the psychoanalyst, is getting at when he talks about the good enough parent. So the good enough parent is basically um, the idea that you, if you have a child, will have to embody a role, uh, you know, mother or father, uh, or it might be the role of a sibling, whatever. And people, parents worry they get imposter syndrome, am I gonna be a good enough parent? Am I doing this right, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of the imposter syndrome experienced uh, with parents. And Winnicott is saying that actually, you don't have to be a good parent. You don't have to be a perfect parent. You don't have to fully identify with that rule and do everything right. In fact, if you did that, that would be bad, right? So a, a good enough parent is really when an individual, a castrated individual, inhabits this role of a mother, say, or a father, and they just don't screw it up, right? The symbolic rule already exists. It's there within society and within the family. And as long as you can play it quite well and kind of not screw it up too much, right? Not go against it. You will uh, enact that, that authoritarian structure in a positive way and that will be beneficial to the kid. So a good enough parent doesn't just produce good enough kids. A good enough parent produces healthy children, right? Um, uh, but if you, like uh, these, I've seen these programs where you have like super nannies or whatever, who are kind of like um, non-castrated figures of authority. They know how you should bring up a kid. They know exactly what you should do. Uh, the problem 
with that is that um, it's like they, the, the point is they seem like they know how to do everything. They seem like everything is right. They are denying the experience of castration. That actually you're not supposed to be a perfect parent. And we'll come to that in a second, what that means. But you as a parent enact a rule. You often feel like you're an imposter within that rule. But the good enough parent is acknowledging that you are a bit rubbish in various ways. You're probably not ready to have a kid. And that's fine. That's good. So to take this example a little bit further, uh, you have a child and this child at the very beginning is, is really a part of you. Um, you know, in terms of if you're the mother, the child is literally a part of your body. And very gradually that child is separating from you. So that, that child is very gradually separating from you physically and the ultimate example of that is in birth, whenever the umbilical cord is cut and that child is biologically or physically separated from you. But also then, this very gradual process of psychological detachment, right? At first, the child is really not itself, but is still an extension of the mother. Uh, and the mother is feeding the child and putting the child down to sleep at various times and all of this. And there is a sense in which there is still a symbiotic immediacy of that, in that relationship. But very gradually, the child enters what's called the world of mediation. Uh, in other words, it's, it begins to see itself as a self. It's separated from everything else. It's separated from itself. It can begin to think of itself as a self. Right, all of those things. So it's mediated now. The world is mediated through language and through experience. <clears throat> and part of the basic rules of parents is to help enact that process of, let's call it, give it a theological term of kenosis. This emptying um, of the child from a kind of a oneness with the mother. Uh, to a kind of experience of lack, of mediation, of language, of experience, of being separate from the other and from itself. So there is this kenotic event that is occurring in the life of the infant. And the role of the parents is to kind of like encourage that uh, kenotic self-emptying, that becoming an individual, becoming independent, um, uh, that's that's kind of like that's that's where it's all going that's where it's all pushing so all you have to do is don't get in the way of it and you know encourage it and this happens very naturally and you see it in various ways with with parents but one of the rules of of, of a parent is to enact the separation with the mother so this is traditionally the role of the father right is the one who comes in and separates the dyad between mother and child. But the point is, because authority structures are symbolic within uh, the human world, these, these uh, roles can be played by anybody, right? If we were more like animals, then we would probably require very, very uh, structured uh, relationships. You probably would justify a nuclear family or something like that. 
but we don't exist we within that purely physical realm these these symbolic structures these authority structures um uh pre-exist us and and various people or things can fill them so but you still need them filled it just means they can be filled by other people but the traditional rule then of the father is the new is the separation is the is what and it's first the first part is called alienation so the first bit is the child starts to feel alienated from the primary caregiver from the world and the alienation is basically a sense that you're starting to feel that you're separate from say your mother uh, and that is a horrific terrifying experience and so what you want to do is you want to go back to the oneness go back to the womb go back to the oceanic mystical experience uh, but um, within kind of psychoanalytic theory the point is not to go back to that the point is then to go further is to actually double alienation and this is called separation so the first the first element of the infant is alienation they and it's called alienation because they're not really separate from their mother yet they're not really wholly themselves they are very caught up in um, the other then separation occurs that's whenever the child is able to really enter into its own um, independence in the world and the first uh, part of this alienation is whenever someone gets in the way and says you have to be yourself you can't stay at oneness with your mother with the other you know you you are an independent person you are not uh, uh, completely intertwined with the universe the second element separation is when you realize that the other that you want to get back to is separated from themselves so this basically means that um, there's a point in your development when you realize that you cannot you know kind of have this in immediate relationship with say your mother because she doesn't have an immediate relationship with herself she is also riven and has conflictual desires and is just a normal person like you so at first you go like i am separate from something and i can only be made whole and i can make them whole by reconnecting with them and then you get to the point of going oh there is no return to that because that person cannot be made whole by me and i cannot be made whole by them they are a self-castrated they are a castrated other right now I, I realize this is starting to sound very kind of technical um, but think of it like this um, in the world uh, you say you go to a party very simple example you go to a party and it's a very high high class party it's it's very maybe it's very wealthy friends that you know and you're feeling like an imposter you're going into this party and you're like oh no like am I going to choose the right wine am I going to use the right cutlery am I going to have the right conversations am, am I wearing the right clothes uh, all of these fears that you have there's a notion that there is a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things and you experience yourself in that gap you go to the party and you're nervous of you're trying to do everything right and that can be described as a type of alienation right separation would be 
when you realize that the party itself, there is no absolute right way to act, right? So you go to the party and you think there's a right way to do everything and you're always trying to second guess yourself and you feel like an imposter and you feel like if only I could like really uh, know the right ways to act, what to wear, what to say, uh, kind of what cutlery to use, etc., then I'd be fine. Uh, but then if you get to the next level, what you do is you realize that actually, of course, there are customs and there are ways to act and interact, but there is no, the party is itself castrated, which means there is, there is no completely right way to act. And in fact, to feel comfortable at a party like that is to realize that you don't have to do everything right, that you can break the rules. That's when you know that someone's fully comfortable at one of those parties, is they know the rules and they know that they can disobey them and play with them. So, you know, at a very simple level, maybe the rule is you always bring a bottle of nice wine to one of these parties. So you go, right, I'm trying to play by the rules, I'm gonna bring a nice bottle of wine. But maybe if you're very comfortable you'll go, no, I'm not going to bring a bottle of wine. Um, you know, maybe I'm going to bring sparklers, a hundred sparklers, right? And uh, we're going to, you know, because it's late at night, it's a nice night, and, you know, maybe it'll be fun to get everybody outside and just kind of have some sort of little mini fireworks thing. Uh, and what you're doing is you're breaking the rules, but you're breaking the rules in the way that makes it very interesting, opens up the possibility for a different type of party. It might completely fall flat and you'd be embarrassed, or it might make the night. But you are comfortable with the idea that um, there is no absolutely right way to act here. The party is itself a construct of both antagonisms and conflicts. Um, so right, this is in politics as well. We often feel that we live in a world where we, there's a certain way that we have to act, certain things that we have to do, uh, certain rules that we have to inhabit properly. Um, but we find a certain freedom not when we act according to what the rules, what ideology tells us to do, but when we realize that ideology is riven with inconsistencies and that actually we don't have to obey ideology and we can't because the ideological system is itself uh, full of antagonisms and contradictions and therefore cannot be obeyed in some absolute way. And that allows for innovation within politics that allows for you to start thinking about other ways to interact or to distance yourself a little bit from the rules that you inhabit, find creative ways to, to live. Um, so that's alienation and separation. And you see it within family dynamics, you see it within culture, you see it within politics. Uh, we tend to think that the way to fix alienation is to go back to try to kind of find this oneness to fully inhabit the system, to be its kind of like a, uh, the instrument of its will. When actually what we need to do is we need to double the alienation. We need to realize not that I am simply separated from you, but that you are separated from yourself. The other is other to itself. And that experience um, is a freeing one. It's one that is traumatic but also very, very powerful. Um, now, in terms of religion, in terms of Christianity, uh, I wanna kind of show how this, I think we see this within the Christian narrative. Um, you have within uh, the Hebrew scriptures, 
Uh, now, I think, by the way, this alienation of separation happens within Judaism as well, but I'm going to primarily talk about Christianity. So you see very early on within the Hebrew Scriptures these notions of covenants. Now, the idea of a covenant is kind of to enact alienation, is there is a certain uh, oppressive oneness with God, right? God is walking around everywhere, talking to you, all of that, right? The point of a covenant, you know, destroying the world when God wants to, there's this, this kind of experience of the, the terror of God, right? Um, and the idea of a covenant is to protect you from the desire of God. So whenever you have a contract with somebody, the, the contract is designed to separate you from their desire, to give you a certain distance. So that if it's a divorce settlement, for example, the person might not want to give you the money, but contractually they have to, right? The contract is designed not to bring you closer to the other, but to actually protect you from the other's desire, to kind of alienate you from the other, to protect you from the over proximity of the other. So with covenants, you go like, we, we do this, you do that, and uh, you know everything's fine. Doesn't matter what you desire, what I desire, if we, stick to the covenant then you know life continues as normal so you have this notion of alienation interestingly within the text uh, but then in the crucifixion you have separation you have the notion of not simply that we are kind of like removed from god but that god is removed from god so whenever christ cries out my god my god why have you forsaken me this is a type of self-castration moment this is an event where we realize that it's not just that I am separate from God, but that God is separate from God. That when I experience this separation and this alienation in myself, that alienation actually reflects the truth of reality itself. That reality itself is riven with contradiction. And so within theological terms, it's the idea that um, when I experience doubt, an unknowing and separation from the absolute, I am actually within the absolute because the absolute experiences those things as well. Um, and, and in a nutshell then, the practice of parotheology, which is liturgy, is the enactment of this canonic self-emptying. That's all it is. It is the enactment of this self-castration of God. The experience of alienation and then separation. And the idea is that as you experience that religiously, as you experience that in liturgy, that echoes into how we experience the world ideologically and personally. So it changes how we interact with people on a one-to-one -one basis, and it changes how we experience our embeddedness in the world itself. We become free from thinking that we inhabit and need to inhabit and have to somehow be an instrument of the will of the big other. So it's a, this experience of the self-castration of the other helps to free us. And in theological terms, this can be called the epoch of the Holy Ghost. Because after Christ experiences this, this sense of self-separation, we enter into the community of people who are gathered together attempting to love and work and do the work of love and where they do the work of love there god is so it's very much a community taking responsibility for its actions and in taking responsibility for its actions in love um, uh, 
enacting God. Um, so let's see if there's what I want to do with this. Okay, so all of that can, can seem quite abstract, um, but it's this notion that we, while we want to get rid of a sense of alienation, we want to get rid of the imposter syndrome by somehow being this instrument of the other. Uh, the real challenge is to experience how reality itself is uh, lacking and this alienation is not a negative thing. This alienation is actually what uh, is, an, is a glimpse of the truth and that what we need to do is uh, take responsibility for that sense of alienation and realize that we have to act within the world without actually knowing what we should be doing with a fear and a trembling. Um, and it's in doing that, that we actually enact a type of ethics. We take responsibility for our life. We take responsibility for our actions uh, without um, simply trying to deny our authenticity by believing that we are, um, that we can find the right way to act, the right way to think. So that is the self-castration of God. That is the difference between humans and lobsters in a nutshell. Um, one thing I'll say, and then I'll, I'll, um, I'll draw this to a close, is that part of the role of the good enough parent is that they enact this self-castration for the child. Just like I talked about Christ enacting this self-castration. The parent at a certain point is revealed to be lacking, to be just a normal person uh, like the kid. So if the kid doesn't see the weakness of their parent, if they don't experience their parent as a lacking subject, then they never enact this full separation. Like, so if, if you have a, say, a very militaristic father or whatever, who never shows weakness, never, never shows any form of crack, then this can, be, this can be kind of damaging. There's a point where you have to realize and you have to see that your parents are normal people where they enact the death of their own authority structures. This is like the death of the mother and the death of the father. Um, uh, my, one of my experiences of that was, uh, I talk about this on The Fundamentalists, is when I beat my dad at chess when I was young. Now, I, I don't think I really did beat him. Uh, he probably let me win. He would do that often. You know, he'd, he'd have a game of chess with me, but he'd let me win. But this particular time, it felt to me that I'd actually beaten him. Uh, it felt like he had tried and I had outsmarted him. And this was a moment of kind of jubilation Whereas like I beat my dad at chess, but also kind of traumatic because it was the realization that my father was not a Superman. It was like this point of, of my father enacting his own death uh, or me experiencing and seeing that. So there's a point where you embody uh, being a mother or a father. And then there's a certain point when your kid begins to see that you are not the perfect mother or father. And instead of trying to deny that, to pretend that's not the case, to either deny your self-castration or to uh, pretend to your child that you are not castrated, that you are not um, a lacking subject. Instead of doing that, the painful process is to allow that to happen. 
even though it's painful. And I had this with, uh, with Icon. There was a point where it was 10 years into this project, maybe nine years in, and I'd written this book, my first book, How Not to Speak of God. And we had a meeting, the people who were involved with setting up Icon, there was about 10 of us there, and we brought in a psychoanalyst friend to help mediate a conversation. And we would just do this occasionally to make sure there was like no underlying issues that might cause real, real problems. And during that all day meeting, it came up that uh, people were a bit pissed off with me writing this book because now I was, well, am I the official voice of Icon? Uh, is Icon an emerging community? Because that's what it was being talked about as. And there was just this um, pushback against me and my work. And when I was there in that experience, um, I was going, okay, this is a type of death of the leader, right? This is actually not a bad thing. This is a good thing. Now, it's still painful. It's still difficult. And you're getting critique from people who, you know, you respect and like you want them to respect and like you. But this was a type of symbolic death that I thought was actually important for the ongoing life of Icon or the life of what would be after Icon. And I'd experienced this once before, uh, you know, five, 10 years, probably actually 15 years previous. Um, and so I was more aware of it. And so instead of fighting it, I thought that like, this is the opportunity for me to start to step aside from, from Icon and let it kind of take its own form and its own life. And that's, that's what I did. And what I was trying to do with that act is basically see this kind of like acknowledgement of castration uh, as part of the growth of the community. And this is what I call the last guru, right? The last guru is basically the guru who shows that there is no guru, including themselves, right? The last guru is, you're always looking for someone who has the answer, who's non-castrated, right? Who can get rid of your alienation. And then you meet someone who at first seems like they're gonna be able to do that. But instead of pretending that they are that, they very gradually help you realize that they are not a guru. And actually, there is no guru, that everyone is castrated. And that is the enactment of separation. And there's lots of parables about this. You know, it's basically the, the type of parable where uh, a student says to the master, you know, I will never betray you. And then the master says, well, then you've betrayed me already. Because part of growing as a student is getting to the point where you realize that the master is a normal person just like everybody else and that you actually have to get to a point where you betray them, where you uh, enact their death, where you see that they are lacking and then you can actually go further. You can, you can bring your thought in different directions or you can advance the thought. There is a place where the student puts themselves under the authority and then there is a point where that, where that authority begins to rupture in a healthy way. So this is neither utter belief in the master, nor is it this notion that there is no authority, that you can have a completely flat structure. This is the idea that no, we need masters. We need people who we look up to. We need gurus who, who basically uh, we project onto all of these desires for wholeness, for non-castration, all of that but who very gradually help us see that 
all of us orchestrated, right? So it's the transference we put on to the other, this desire to be our new mother, our new father. Um, and then very gradually that person, if they are like, the last guru, right? If they, they are the person who very gradually shows that they don't bring you back before alienation, they push you through to separation. Um, and that's kind of what I'm trying to do with power of theology, is you, uh, is you allow people to project all of that stuff into the liturgy and then the liturgy enacts its own self-castration in a way that then pushes back onto you your own responsibility for your life. That's, that's the core. So the parent, at a certain point, if they're, a, if they're a good parent and they see that the child, and adolescence is a good version of this, like an adolescence, the child is basically questioning your authority. They are undermining it. They are cynical towards it. They are seeing through it. And painful as that, I'm sure, must be for parents, there is a certain point in which the parent needs to say, this is healthy, this is good, right? Instead of trying to figure out loads of ways to stop your child from either seeing you as a real person or undermining your authority, you allow that to take place. Uh, you don't see it as a lack of respect. You see it actually as part of the canonic self-emptying that, that is important to becoming a mature individual. And then on the other side of that, you can be a friend to your child. Uh, and you'll still have like a residual symbolic uh, position for the child, but you can also have a friendship with them that you couldn't have had whenever you are more of a symbolic figure. Uh, and in the same way, Within paratheology, it's about enacting that. At first, the liturgy is the authority, is God. Then it slowly enacts its own self-castration, its own canonic self-emptying. The other who feels alienated and wants to reconnect with God then sees that this liturgical structure, which is the symbol of God, um, is itself riven with lack. And they then are able to accept their own lack uh, their own um, inconsistencies and antagonisms. And when that happens, they have experienced the crucifixion. They have experienced this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as they accept that, simply accept it, as they are able to make space for that, and as the liturgical gathering is able to contain that, then they enter into resurrection, which is the community gathered together, acting in responsibility, uh, taking responsibility um, and looking out for one another. And then that is kind of, that is the resurrection that comes after the crucifixion. So I hope that's, that's kind of clear enough. You see it in, and, and I, I want to make sure that it's like, it's like, it's actually not great for a parent who tries to just be the friend of their child, you know, as if like you're not a symbolic authority figure. You completely avoid having that, that symbolic, uh, position for your child just as it's dangerous if you fully embrace it and and totally take on the symbolic role there is this important bit in which you have to embody it realizing that you're a bit of an imposter and eventually enact its own destruction by exposing your own uh, self-castration you don't even have to expose it it's going to happen naturally you just have to not get in the way of it you have to embrace it you have to see it as healthy you have to move with it and that, that structure of what I'm saying is what we need to do at a liturgical level, that's parotheology. And that, if we are able to do that in community, 
over 30 years, right, this experience of this, um, uh, this event, it has deep uh, positive impact in how we experience the wider world, how we engage with ideology, because now we can be freed from that big other. And also, at a personal level, how we interact in terms of our roles within society. So it has this positive impact. And that's why for me, parotheology is a kind of um, a practice that um, I call it ontological. It has a, it's, it's about connecting us. Um, it's about uh, helping us experience our own lack, but it has a political dimension. It has a personal dimension that, that, that directly comes out of that.